Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. We begin our season review episodes. I was going to say series, and it is that too, but it's not going to be in a row. Uh because I like to bounce around a little bit in the offseason, if you guys hadn't figured that out already. I find it, I don't want to, it, it, not boring, that's not the right word. I just, I like the, <sighs> what is it exactly about being able to bounce around that makes me feel more content? I think that there's a repetitive nature during the season that I want to eliminate in the offseason. So we get to the offseason realized it was actually kind of warm in here so those on youtube are watching me unzip a sweatshirt so seductively here on air the uh i love the in season and I, i actually love the repetitiveness of it because you just you hop on and boom there's basketball to talk about but i also don't want to do that same thing in the off season because it does get a little bit repetitive even in my own mind so you've probably noticed that so far this offseason, last Monday we did a, an old man squad review, and then on Tuesday we did a uh, finals or a playoff play-in preview show, then we did a couple of lessons learned, then we did a playoff preview show, yesterday we did another old man squad review, today we're breaking open, we're cracking open the nut that is team reviews of a season gone by and the reason we're doing it right now is because the articles are dropping at sports ethos right now our good buddy incredible analyst Derek ball dropped the pistons review article yesterday over at sports ethos it is completely free for everybody to check out Uh, i threw the link in the description of the show so you guys can find it there very simply i strongly recommend it and this is what you're going to be getting on every team intermittently over the next say two months or so here at sports ethos so the first one dropped yesterday it goes up the standings from worst to first that's the way we've done it here since sports ethos slash hoopball has existed for six and some odd years i guess it's about six and a half years something like that and that's what we're going to do again and they tell me they say dan Panda tells me. Panda says, Dan, next team deal is dropping tomorrow. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll uh, I'll queue it up. I'll get the link out. We'll take a look at those players on the podcast and boom, boom, double barrel action here. But hello, everyone. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. This is going to be more of a fantasy geared show today, although we will talk about playoff results and then the upcoming games Uh later in the program that'll be towards the end i have found that folks seem to prefer that we get into the fantasy stuff first so to that end welcome to the program you can find me on twitter at dan Bespris. youtubers you can see it there on your screen SportsEthos.com, the website ethos fantasy bk ethos fantasy bb for baseball ethos fantasy fb for football and hey put a call out here at the beginning of today's show if you want to get into an ethos league This is a perfectly reasonable time to do it. We've got basketball, baseball, football, and hockey leagues running right now. The great Andre is running them with the assistance of folks in each division because I know, uh, much like myself, Andre mostly plays fantasy basketball. So, you know, JP from the football division, Blake from hockey, Joe with baseball, they're all working with Andre to make sure the settings are all right. 
And if you missed out on an Ethos League last year, and you're thinking, damn it, how do I make sure I get in the next one? This is the perfect time to do it. We'll get you on the list so you get that first email that goes out. You won't miss it in the mayhem of fantasy draft season. So hit me up either in the YouTube chat, on Twitter at Dan Bespers, or email roster at sportsethos.com if you'd like to be a part of an Ethos League. Also, Ethos is hiring someone on the sales side. So please hit me up if you're interested in that as well. It is heavily phone calls. I want to put that out there ahead of time so people are not like, hey, blah, 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 I want to do sports. It's like, no, this is sales. It is a paid position. So reach out if you're interested in uh, getting involved in that as well. So how are we going to do these things? How are we going to do these season and review podcasts? Well, historically... We've just gone through the team, talked a little bit about their season as a whole, and then worked down the board, mostly talking about the most interesting names on the ball club, but you know, maybe getting into some other stuff as well. So let's just start at the top. Pistons, 17-65 and 65 this year. They were far and away the worst team in the NBA. The Rockets and the Spurs were the second worst, tied with 22 wins apiece, so things really did implode on Detroit when Cade Cunningham, who, uh, you know, YouTubers, you can see the list of, of fantasy ranks on your screen right now, played just 12 games, had an uh, injury to his shin, and the Pistons thought, meh, we're tanking anyway. Let's just throw Cade on the shelf. He got his three weeks of fun, which sucks. Um, but this was one of the players on a tank team that I avoided. We talked on yesterday's show about how I took way too many risks with San Antonio Spurs this year, knowing they were going into a tank. Pistons, I didn't. I did not draft... Well, let's see. I drafted one Piston in a couple of spots, and that was Boyan Bogdanovich, who actually was the highest-ranked Piston on a 9-cat per-game basis. So, you know, goody-goody. He got off to a really quick start this year. Boyan did. Um, things came kind of back down to earth for him as the year went on. I think he was shooting like 55% the first month of the year, and so he was a top 75 guy, top 60 for range stretches. He settled back to around 100, and then they shut him down. Which, of course, that's the thing. With tanking teams, eventually, basically everyone gets turned off. Not the entire roster. Killian Hayes played 76 out of 82 ball games. Jaden Ivey played 74 out of 82 games. Those are the only two Pistons that got into the 70s. Jalen Duran got to 67. He was dealing with various stretches of bilateral ankle soreness, which is just like, dude is young and his body is getting worn out. But let's talk a little bit about the players, because from a team standpoint, the Pistons are not that fun. 17 and 65 is a really difficult season to sit through. They were 9-32 at home. They were 8-33 on the road. There was pretty much no difference between how they played in different places. They were 8-44 within their own conference. I mean, they whoever they played, they lost. You know, remember how, how bad the Hornets were? Second worst record in the Eastern Conference. Ten games ahead of the Pistons. Come on. And then the Magic were another seven games up on the Hornets. The Detroit was epically bad this year. In basically every respect. They did have some fun players, but as a team, they were atrocious. 
But let's try to think this through. What does that actually mean for the Pistons going forward? Is this a situation where you look at what Detroit is, did this year and have to immediately think, I want nothing to do with them in future years? And I think the answer is no. Because they already got Cade. That was like big-time lottery grab number one. They got two pretty good players in the lottery last year in Jalen Duran via trade, and Jaden Ivey was their own grab, uh, the early pick. So they've got these, uh, I mean, even if you want to just talk about those three players, they have a nice, firm little base. And then they've got these other young guys that they either drafted before, like Killian Hayes, who made some small strides this year, but is still Killian Hayes. Uh, they picked up scrap heap lotto guys like Marvin Bagley and James Wiseman, and they still kind of have to figure out what the hell they want to do with those dudes. But there's a base now with Detroit, and I think their future, what they do this coming year, probably sits on whether or not they get a top three pick, which is probable, but very much not guaranteed. With the worst record in the league, I think they're guaranteed to pick no worse than fifth or something like that. Um... Maybe it's fourth, even. No, they could... Eh, it doesn't matter. Either way, they're going to get a pretty good pick. But I do think that something... It has something to do with being in that top one, two, or three. Because they got their key guy two years ago. They got some very good ones this last year. Let's say Detroit gets Wembenyama. You don't go into another tank with him. Yeah, you're going to go easy. You're not going to push him too hard. But that's going to be a team that tries to start pushing their pieces of the puzzle together. Because when a team is tanking, they've got all these puzzle pieces, and they're just sort of juggling them. They're throwing them up in the air. They're seeing where they land. They don't really care. Once they want to start to win, they start to take the pieces and, and actually see where they might fit. What if they get Miller or Henderson or whoever else's is, is top draft picks? I know they're not, like, they don't have the... the name power of a Wembenyama right now. But if Detroit gets another top two, top three level guy, and it isn't Wembenyama, I still think that they probably need to start at least to veer away from the obvious we don't want to even try to win games mode because it'll be Cade's third year. You just can only do this stuff with prized assets for so long. Cade got to play his first season, mostly healthy. Sophomore year, they said, we're going to tank again. You got a thing going on? Eh, don't bother. You can't really do that again a third year. There's something, I, I just, I don't know what it is about, like, third year in a row where it just gets to be, it gets to be too much. People can't handle it. Players, mentally, they need a break from purposeful losing. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Ooh, say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Your friends turn on you. You're forced to go on a last-second drink run and end up missing the game-winning touchdown while in line. Oh, no. Terrifying, isn't it? Luckily, you can avoid the drama with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. 
With Drizzly, you can shop a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your watch party. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area, find the best deals on game day drinks, and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. I mean, think about uh, the Thunder are a great example of this. That's the recent team where everybody's like, that team's been tanking. Two years, they were in hyper tank. Two. This year, they tried. There's something about tanking, and sometimes you're just going to get a team that's bad, that's going to have a record in the bottom four or five, and that might still be the case for Detroit, even if they get a really good player, but purposeful losing, like Orlando did last year, like we've seen, like the Spurs did this year, like Detroit's done now, for basically, this is effectively their third season of tank, but maybe I should add the caveat It's not so much three years of tanking in a row. It's three years of tanking with your core guy already in place. And for Detroit, that has to be Cade Cunningham plus whoever they get in this upcoming draft. For the Thunder, it's been Shea after Chris Paul was moved and they went from competitive to not competitive again. Spurs don't have their guy yet. So this year was like the gimme. You might see two additional years of hard tanking out of San Antonio, but I still abide by this theory, which is once a team has its guy, they only tank with that guy for two years. Because by the third, they have to start to convince that dude that they should stay. They should want to remain in town. We need to show them progress. I think the Pistons are still going to be pretty damn bad this coming year, regardless of who they get in the draft. They're not going to just magically become a good team. But a healthy Cade Cunningham, sophomore Jalen Duran, sophomore Jaden Ivey, whatever stud they get in the upcoming draft, that's going to be a team that, much like I think Orlando is a good comparison point, now Orlando probably has more talent than what the Pistons will have this coming year, but the Magic stopped trying to lose. They got their number one guy, and they said, okay, you know what, we've got some pretty good pieces. We got Paolo now, who's our key anchor. We've got former top pick Markel Fultz, who's coming back. He got injured at the beginning of the year, but he looked really good this year. They got Franz, who looked pretty good the previous season. They didn't even tank a year with Paolo. They got their guy, and they said, you know, we already have some good young pieces in place. Let's just turn them loose. It's pretty amazing to look at a team like Orlando, that, yes, they have better talent than the teams that were in true tank mode this year, but not by double. You know, the Magic aren't twice as good as the Detroit Pistons. They're significantly better, but not twice as good. The difference between a team like Orlando and a team like the Rockets or the Spurs or the Pistons is that one of those three, four teams, I can count, was not attempting to lose ball games by just sitting guys, by throwing out bad analytic lineups when they when the game was close. Coaches in front offices, they can do really clever stuff. The one I always think back about is the year before they changed the uh, lotto ball odds and the Mavs were tanking. I think it was the year they got Luka. 
They were leading the Lakers. It's like, I can never remember this. But I, like, I can never forget this game. I don't know exactly the day it was, but if you go back to whatever that year was before they changed the lotto ball odds, the Mavs were beating the Lakers by like eight points in the fourth quarter of a game that they wanted to lose. And I think Rick Carlisle might have still been there. Was that right at the tail end before they moved on to go into rebuild mode? I forget exactly. Pulled the whole damn unit. And put in five guys that had no business together on the floor. Of course, the Lakers went on a furious run. They outscored him by like 16 in the fourth quarter, and the game flipped on its head. But that was in-game tank in a way that, you know, the players that came out of the game were probably like, oh, shucks, you know. And then the ones that got in were super excited about it. So it was tanking while actually giving dudes an opportunity. But it was so egregious. I mean, that was like, that was a win that was converted into a loss. And teams do this all the time. All the time. But let's get into the players individually here. We talked about the Pistons as a sort of a, a an arc long enough. And we'll start at the top with Boyan Bogdanovich, uh, who was number 105 on a per-game basis this year. Um, obviously did not last throughout the entire season because, like any, basically everybody else on the team, he got shut down, played 59 ball games. So, yeah, obviously he's not going to hit his mark by totals, but uh, on a per-game basis, he basically got... He hit his ADP, I would argue. He's under contract for two more years with the Pistons. We know he was on the trading block, but it's also hard to move a guy who has three years left on their deal, which two and a half is what his deal was at the trade deadline. And on top of that, and as you'll see uh, quite astutely pointed out in Derek's article back on Sports Ethos... They don't really have anybody else on the team that can shoot reliably. So you might look at this team next year and expect that Boyan is going to be gone halfway. I don't know that that's necessarily set in stone. What probably is set in stone is that there's no way he's going to get 15 shots a game and five free throws with a healthy Cade Cunningham all year, with Jaden Ivey taking another step forward, and presumably a higher usage guy coming aboard in the draft. There just simply won't be enough shots because Boyan played most of his season without the team's primary usage guy on the floor, and that was Cade. Yes, uh, you know, Jaden Ivey, his shots moved up as a result of Cade going down and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so as much as I like Boyan for his good percentages, ability to hit the three-pointer and score on good percentages, the fact his value is tied up in volume, he is exclusively a volume guy. If you remove even tiny slivers of that, his value falls off a cliff. So he was good for this year, and yeah, you can see a value in him for a league where you're punting one of the defensive stats or assists or even rebounds from a front court guy. But he's not going to score 22 points a game next year. He's not going to get 15 shots a game. That number's going to come down probably by, I would think, anywhere from 3 to 5 points. He's not going to be a top 100 range dude next year. Will he be functional in points leagues and some punt builds? Yes, but he's not a guy that I'm expecting to target unless something pretty significant happens in the offseason, which I don't expect. Jalen Duran was the second highest per game ranked player on the Pistons this year at 131, although the number for him was uh, certainly superior to that as the season went on. And we can try to do some of this on the screen for folks that are kind of hanging out with us here uh, on the YouTube side. I know it's not the world's largest number of you, 
over the final three months of the year, so basically Duran's last 30 games or so, he was number 90, playing 26 minutes per game, 11.2 points, 9.4 rebounds, just under a steal, just over a block, brilliant field goal percent because pretty much all he does is dunk and get putbacks. Not a good foul shooter, three shots per game at about 65%, but I mean, look, the outlines of this dude are so very there, and... I mean, honestly, I, I, I'm very pro Jalen Duran. I think there's a, a, especially if we think, if the Pistons get someone interesting in the draft, that I think even if they get Wembenyama, you still see Duran quite a bit as the center of the future. I wouldn't spend a top 100 pick on him if they end up with another front court guy in the draft. If they end up with another, with like maybe more of a small forward type in the draft, then I would consider uh, going Duran and expecting him to roll inside the top 100 next year. So it's a, a lot of this is going to come down to what pick Detroit gets. You know, if they get a, a shooting guard or a small forward, and it mostly impacts the playing time of, you know, the the guys that they were screwing around with, you know, Marvin Bagley, Alec Burks, Isaiah Livers, the younger of the that those names, Hamadou Diallo. If if the guy coming in is going to going to sideline those dudes. And all I've got to worry about with Duran is whether or not James Wiseman is going to take 20 of his minutes. I still bet on Duran. So, and again, that was only with 26 minutes per ball game. He was top 90. So there is upside beyond that if his body can take it and if they finally are just like, okay, this dude is, this dude's amazing. And he was the youngest player in the entire NBA this last year. He did that. He did all he did this season, just obliterating people on the glass as the youngest player in the whole league. Can you believe that? I think that's pretty... I think that's damn remarkable. Loved watching Duran play this season. Cade Cunningham was number 135 per game in 9-cat. A lot of that was um, the steals being low, threes and high turnovers being somewhat low. Still... You know, as someone that is predominantly a nine-category guy, I'm always going to be a tiny bit lower, I think, on Cade than the general fantasy handicapping public. First of all, if you're an eight-cat, turnovers, which is his second-worst category, comes off the board. So he goes flying up, you know, four or five rounds or whatever. You pull that out. But to me, everything with Cade is coming down to field goal percent and three-pointers. Because if you're going to be as brutally awful as he was for field goal percent this in his 12 games this year, and frankly was the previous season as well, 41.5% on 19 shots per game, you got to make more than 1.43s. I mean, he's shooting that horribly, and it's not long distance. I would expect that he'll be better. I presume he was playing a little bit through the shin thing, which I'm sure was something that he could have played through if this wasn't a tank season, but... Okay, fine. Let's argue that his field goal percent does come up a little bit. Let's say 41.5 becomes, I don't know, 43, 43.5. I don't think we'll see much of a larger jump than that. Free throw is fine, as is. Turnovers are going to stay relatively high. That's not just going to magically fix itself, especially not on a young team. Are the three-pointers going to make a big leap forward? Maybe small, small leap forward. So you could very well see Cade with about 20 points per game, could he get up to two threes a night? Yeah, I think probably. Six rebounds probably comes down, believe it or not, because he hadn't really played with the better rebounding front court before he got hurt. Six assists is, I think, pretty repeatable. 
a steal or a little bit more repeatable, half a block. We saw him do that both in his rookie season and his very short sophomore campaign. So, yeah, I would expect a step forward, but, I mean, I think you're going to see Cade getting drafted probably in the 40s this coming season because people see the eye-popping scoring, rebound, assist potential with him. But unfortunately, ignore the fact that this year he was a negative in threes, steals, blocks, field goal percent, and turnovers. I mean, that's a lot of negatives. So again, I don't want to confuse everyone by by constantly talking about the negative stuff with him. What I, I just want to point out the fact that he is someone who is much more built for points leagues, eight category leagues, and punt builds. Like right now, he looks like a terrific punt threes or punt field goal percent option. Those things don't usually go together. <laughs> if you're punting threes, uh, you're probably aiming to win field goal percent. He's the odd combination that isn't good at either yet. Although I do think that threes in particular is a pretty easy one for him to fix. Would I draft Cade Cunningham? Hell yeah. I think he's going to be a fantasy play next year. He'll be inside the top 100 easily. But is he someone that I'm going to target? Based on what we know about players of his fantasy build, he's going to come off the board before where I would take him. I know that's like kind of a dumb line to draw in the sand of... Is he a do not draft? No, he's not a do not draft. What's the difference between a do not draft and probably won't end up with? Well, one is a guy you're not taking no matter where he ends up. The other is, oh, look at this dude. He fell like two rounds farther than I expected. All right, now I'll take a look at him. But I don't think there's any chance Cade makes it as far as I would need him to go, even after missing this entire season. The only hope of him falling is that people will just like, oh, he's not going to play again next year. And maybe we, th- we think he does. And he drops like into the 60s or 70s or something like that. There's just no way that's going to happen, though. Come on. He was going in the 30s this year. Why would he fall? He's not going to fall three and a half rounds because he was hurt. I don't think. Marvin Bagley was actually the next highest ranked nine cat per game player on the Pistons. And you could not pay me enough on fantasy draft night to take a shot on Marvin Bagley. He is points. He is rebounds. He actually did a little bit better in field goal percent this year. But good Lord, no thank you. Bad free throw numbers. Not a great defensive stat guy. Tried stepping out and hit some three-pointers, but didn't go all that great for him. Never passes the basketball. I will kindly pass on Marvin Bagley. In fact, if you're going to give me a shot at a power forward on that team, assuming they don't get one in the draft, Isaiah Stewart, who was right behind him in overall ranks, was actually starting to show signs of kind of growing. We saw him improving his three-point shot. His rebounding was getting better. Steals and blocks really weren't there uh, for Stewart, but he shot just 44%, and that's a number that you have to assume comes up as he kind of settles in for an entire season. I'm still not drafting him. I don't even care if he's getting starters minutes. I don't think that he's guaranteed to hit fantasy value, but at least he's got a better shot than Bagley. The other names uh, on the Pistons that we probably need to at least touch on, and there are three of them, are Killian Hayes, uh, James Wiseman, and Jaden Ivey. I don't care if Wiseman's getting the starting job. I'm not drafting him. He doesn't block shots. He mostly just rebounds, and even that's like not really as good as Jalen Duran. He'll score a little bit. Field goal percent is fine. 
Uh, but he's he's a train wreck in so many fantasy categories that please don't even look at it. I, again, I don't care what the Pistons announce as their starting lineup. I don't want Wiseman. You might be able to talk me into Jaden Ivey next year. He was a percentages disaster. I don't think I'm going to end up with him. That's one of those other ones where he's probably not going to fall far enough because Cade will be coming back and... They've got to figure out what they want to do with the Cade, Killian Hayes, Jaden Ivey trio now. This season, they really only had to worry about two of those three guys. Uh, Hayes yeah, steals and assists specialist, basically. Doesn't shoot the three. Field goal percent is is low. Much like Cade, actually. No threes and a low field goal percent. There's just, there's just no way that you can support that out of a guard position on your team. At least his free throw shooting got a little bit better this year. He had like five really big games and then Twitter yelled at me because I kept saying, you know what he's going to be, folks. He's going to fall back beyond the top 120 and he finished at 170 as basically a starter in, in 76 games. I know they brought him off the bench for like two weeks in the middle there, but he basically played starters minutes this year, averaged 28 and change and didn't even sniff top 100 value in nine cat. Points league still, in my opinion, not enough there. 10 points, 6 assists, I guess, is good, but the 10 points is super low. And then at least with Jaden Ivey, as you pivot over to his side, I know he was ranked way lower than Hayes, but a lot of that is just because of the volume stuff. Bad free throw number, bad field goal number, bad turnover number. Jaden Ivey, points league darling next year, but whatever growth he has is probably going to be muted by whoever they get in the draft and the return of Cade Cunningham. So the Pistons, all these guys that are going to try to fit together next year as they then, I think, in my opinion, start to attempt to at least crawl out of the complete and total cellar of the league and maybe end up, you know, in a conversation for bottom five or something like that. The only guys I'm really looking at on this team, and it's it's really only one, is Jalen Duran. I think Bogdanovich takes a hit. Um... I have no idea where he's going to get drafted next year. I think people might be a little bit nervous about taking him, so perhaps there's a world where he would make sense in some head-to-head leagues. Uh, Cade is going to get overdrafted, I think. I know Ivy's going to get overdrafted. Wiseman's going to get drafted at all, which I think is a mistake. Same with Isaiah Stewart. Same with Marvin Bagley. Same with Killian Hayes. I don't even think those guys deserve to get drafted. Ivy at least fits different builds because he is good in a few things and terrible in others. That's at least that's more workable for builds for head to head for points league stuff like that than a guy like a Wiseman or a Stewart or a Hayes or a Bagley who are you know, Hayes I guess is at least well above average in assists and steals, but being good in two things and pretty much awful at everything else doesn't really cover it up. Isaiah Stewart was better than average in rebounding, that's one. Wiseman was a positive in field goal percent, that's one. Nope. Give me Jalen Duran, man. 25 minutes a game he averaged this year, and he was a positive in rebounds, blocks, and field goal percent. His turnovers weren't particularly high, and as we saw his minutes tick up, he became uh, average to even maybe slightly above average in steals. The field goal percent will have an even larger impact as he gets more attempts, and the rebounding, I believe, for Duran has a chance to be hyper-elite. He could be top 10 in rebounding if they give him the opportunity next year. And I believe, as I said before, with Detroit, it comes down to who they get in the draft and how that steers the team 
into whatever this next season is going to be. Like, if they get bumped way down in the draft and they don't get one of those top dudes, maybe they do tank again. But if it's a top guy, they're going to need to prove to Cade and the guy coming in that they have a solid plan. And that means trying to win a few games. Let's talk about what happened last night in the playoffs very quickly. And then I also uh, would like to discuss how that relates to... I know we, we said we were going to do um, some stuff from the games that happened over the weekend and how that translates to the games happening tonight. So let's try to zip through that uh, a little bit quicker here. And the, the it's a three-gamer, by the way. Um, Hawks, Celtics, and Knicks, Cavs are going to be happening at roughly the same time. They're separated by a half hour. Uh, Knicks, Cavs, Clippers, Suns, I believe, are the ones that are nationally televised tonight, but who cares? Celtics, 10-point favorite, total of 230 and a half, which requires us to go back to their previous game and try to figure out what happened. Well, Boston was a 10-point favorite, totaling that one was 231, and it went way under. Boston covered, not by much, barely, ended up tighter than expected. Boston went up by a, a like almost 30 points, I think, in that ball game before Atlanta clawed their way back into it. But here's the thing. We did this yesterday with pace, and it told us exactly what was going to happen in that Philly-Brooklyn game. The pace of that was like 201. So the last one went over the pace by 20 points. The next one went under. It doesn't always fluctuate like that, but sometimes you can look at a line, you can wonder why it's set where it is. Well, this last one, 112 to 99, finished at 211 points. It went under the posted total by 20, and oddsmakers said, Meh, we don't care. We're going to leave it at about the same. Opened at 228, and it's been slowly bet up to 230 since then. Public money and, it looked like, sharp money has been coming in on the over in this one. So then you got to ask yourself, why? Why? Well, for one, Atlanta took 98 damn shots in that first ball game. And we'll do our little fuzzy math game here. Between turnovers and free throws, that got them to about 120 possessions. You want to talk about vastly underachieving. Shooting 39% with only five three-pointers is the way to do it. If Atlanta posts even a an average offensive performance in this game, they get to about 110 to 115 points. What about the Boston side? Well, Boston somehow didn't get to the free throw line very often. Only took 18 free throws in the whole ball game. They committed 16 turnovers, which is on the high side. Shot the ball okay at 47.7%. Uh, but again, let's fuzzy math it a little bit. Play around with the numbers. 104, 113. They were basically right on their number of possessions in this one. 113, Atlanta had 120. You add those together, you're talking about 233, roughly, possessions in Game 1. So the fact that this one went under by 20-some-odd points was basically on the shoulders of the Hawks not being very good. Okay, well, what do we do with the number? If we have 233 possessions and the total opened at 228, yes, you'd figure there'd be a tiny bit of value on the over. It's now moved up to 230 and a half in some places, which I don't like to bet into totals where I feel like you're within one bucket of the pace of the game. But that's an explanation as to why the total didn't move that much. Odds makers just expect the teams to score better in game two. They expect a better offensive showing 
from the Hawks specifically, but really from both teams. Of course, if you shoot the ball better, the pace probably slows down a little bit. I think you could expect Boston to get slightly fewer turnovers, maybe see a couple more free throws here in Game 2. That's your reasoning for why the number is as high as it is. And then in terms of Boston being a 10-point favorite, that's probably about accurate. Atlanta was awful in the first game, but they only came back because Boston stopped paying attention. In a tighter ball game, you'll see Boston continue to pay attention. They'll continue to kind of try to push Atlanta back down the board. Very, the world's tiniest lean to the Hawks to at least be a bit more competitive in this one. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is... This is not one where I'd feel super strongly about which direction it's going as Boston tries to go up 2-0 and the Hawks try to even their series. Knicks beat the Cavs in the first one. This uh, second game opened with Cavs as a four-point favorite. It's up to six. Total opened at 213 and actually has been bet up to 214, which is notable. By the way, Josh Hart, who was listed as doubtful yesterday, has been upgraded to questionable for New York. Everybody else would seemingly be good to go. The team shot 42 and 43% in that first game, so you could look at that and say, well, the offense should be better. But at the same time, don't we kind of expect the teams to not shoot all that great? These are two excellent defensive teams. These are two teams that can squeeze out offense. Donovan Mitchell, in particular, is the guy on one side. Uh, for the Knicks, it's typically Jalen Brunson getting that done. He had 27 in Game 1. That one ended at 198 points. And we could play the, the pace game here, which suggested that it should have been a higher-scoring game. But I do want to caution folks... Uh, that, like, with Boston-Atlanta, that game was lower scoring, not because the Celtics were just, like, the brilliant Celtics on defense. The Hawks just missed a ton of stuff. And you could argue the same thing with New York-Cleveland. I just... The quality of shots that the Knicks and the Cavs are going to get in this series is likely to produce totals in each game that are slightly under the pace of the ball game. I would still look ever so slightly to the under. I don't think that I'm touching it because uh, the pace did kind of suggest that this should have been in the 215 range, if even actually a tiny bit higher than that. Uh, but I, I again, I don't expect the teams to be that much better offensively in game two. So maybe you call it no lean on the total. We'll go with that. And then on the side... I'm actually not certain why the Cavs are, are a six-point favorite here. It, it feels like every one of these games is going to come down to the wire. So if you can get an underdog coming down to the wire with, with a couple of possessions, that's probably the direction you look. Uh, don't feel super strongly about that ballgame either. I try to tell you guys when there's a spot that I really, really like. Um, you know, like Clippers on Sunday was one that I mentioned on Friday's show. Um Minnesota in their play-in loss to the Lakers covering was one that I really liked. I thought that there was an absurd premium being put on L.A. in that game. So each of those has been a cover. And then the Kings uh, series play was one that I thought was really interesting. And they're up two games to nothing now after they beat Golden State last night. Uh, what the hell else? Oh, and the Sixers beat up on the, the Nets, who are a bit overmatched in that series. But let's talk Clippers-Suns here. That's the other one coming up tonight. This ballgame's been bet up. Uh, Suns opened as a seven-point favorite. It's up to eight and a half. Total up from 225 to 227. This movement doesn't surprise me that much because I think there's a built-in 
what's known as the zigzag theory, where there's an expectation that specifically here when a home team, a favored home team loses game one, they just expect that the favored team is going to run game two. But I'll say the same thing about game two that I said about game one. I don't think the Clippers are rolling over. I know, I think they know, and I said it on yesterday's show briefly, but I want to use the same comparison here. I believe that the Clippers feel like the Suns are going to get better and their chemistry is going to improve every ball game. And so LA knows here that their chance to beat the Suns is going to have to be acting fast. You got to knock them out before they grow up, basically. We knew in game one that the Clippers were just going to have a better game plan because the Suns hadn't been battle-tested with this unit yet. They're going to have some adjustments now. Uh, one that I would suggest is is very likely is more Kevin Durant because the Clippers threw Kawhi and doubles at him in the fourth quarter, and the Suns, I think, are going to have some counters for that in this ballgame because they got to make sure that KD is still involved late, uh, well, honestly, throughout the game. Uh, they got plenty out of Devin Booker in Game 1. It wasn't enough. They got some good stuff out of KD, but he needs to be leading the team in shots in a postseason game. It can't go Booker, Aiton, and then Durant. That's just, it's got to be Kevin Durant. Similarly, on the Clippers' side, Kawhi is going to have to lead the team in shots, and he did. 38 points on 24 shots. Russ, who went an atrocious 3-for-19, uh... Everybody's like, Russ, what an unbelievable... Yeah, he had a couple plays down the stretch. He was still a minus six in a game they won by five. Clippers won this game because of the bench. The bench came in and just smashed Phoenix for like four minutes, and everybody else played in a dead heat pretty much the rest of the way. Kawhi was only a plus three. You want to know who the best plus minus guys in the Clippers were in this one? Plumlee, plus 16. Terrence Mann, Bones Highland, Norman Powell. Those guys all plus double digits. Kawhi plus three was the next one. And then Russ, Eric Gordon minus six. Ivica Zubats was minus 11. Batum was a minus eight. I know that that doesn't tell the whole story, but it does tell a good chunk of it for this one. Anyway, point is here, I don't think the Clippers are just going to roll over and say, we can, we're content to get one. Fine, smash us by 20 here in game two. They're going to be fighting. Clippers are not going down without a fight. And then if you also want to look at the pace, this game actually had a pretty good clip to it, but it had a ton of free throws. That was a big part of why the total got up to 225. Um, what was the posted total of game one? 225 and a half. So it was right on the money. Uh, so not surprisingly, oddsmakers opened the next one at 225 again. It's been bet up to 227. Um, that's Scott Foster, by the way. If you want to know why the line moved up two points, Scott Foster is why the line moved up two points. There's an expectation that there's going to be a heavy dose of fouling again in this one. I just don't know that it can be more than we saw in game one. The teams combined to attempt 61 free throws in the first ball game, and most of the other playoff games we've seen have been much closer to the 35 to 45 range. In fact, I'm looking at all of them from Saturday and Sunday. Let's see. Did anybody get close to that? We'll start it on Saturday. Philly, Brooklyn, 31. Boston, Atlanta, 40. Knicks, Cavs, 43. Sacramento, Golden State, game one. That one was 59. So that was the other 
really big one if you're looking for a reason. By the way, I am upset. I was hoping that they would have another high-scoring game, and then we'd have a massive under to bet into. Uh, but, you know, that was what we knew going into yesterday, that the total was too high. The question was, was it way too high or just barely? And the answer was uh, way too high. But uh, Lakers-Grizzlies, Lakers led the league in free throws by a bazillion this year. Those teams shot 16 apiece in game one. Miami-Milwaukee, these two teams shot a, a near a bazillion during the regular season. They combined for 43. And then you got Clippers-Phoenix. Suns, who barely shot free throws during the regular year. They weren't a free throw shooting team. Got 33 of them. Clippers without Paul George got 29. Denver-Minnesota combined for only 33. You know what? Let's go to, let's go to yesterday. Philly, Brooklyn, 33. Sacramento, Golden State, 47. That was a high one because the Warriors foul a lot. They really do. The Warriors foul a ton. That game ended at 220. We knew there was some room on the under. We knew it. We just didn't know if it was enough. And there, yeah, it was enough. <laughs> so, anyway, my thought there is uh, 227 seems pretty high for Clippers Suns unless you think they're shooting 60 free throws again. That's my take on that one. Um, eight and a half feels like a lot of points with as good as the Clippers looked in game one. I, I think we're seeing a little bit of a similar thing to what happened in Warriors-Kings yesterday where people felt like the Warriors were going to win uh, the series. And so when they lost game one, a lot of Warriors money came in um, and kept the line and, and tipped the line kind of the wrong way. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening here with Clippers-Suns where Suns lost the first one. There's an assumption that they just simply won't lose game two. And maybe that's true. Maybe they win it. But winning by nine is a tall order against a team like the Clippers that is battle-tested. And Kawhi, for all of his warts, he might be the best playoff player in the NBA. Certainly up there with Giannis. All right, that's what I got for today. Thanks for hanging out, everybody. I think everyone has left the YouTube show by now. Nobody wants my playoff breakdowns. You jerks. <laughs> Nobody's listening. I can call you anything I want. Recorded, folks. Uh, much love over here from the corner of my bedroom. Uh, enjoy the games tonight. Should be fun ones as always. Tomorrow, I believe we will be getting into our next lesson learned from the season. But you know what? We'll know when we know. So long for now, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dan Bespers for Fantasy NBA Today. Hey, hit me up again if you want to be part of an Ethos League, uh, a recruit, or... Uh, other and go try out a wager pass for 75% off you can get our best bets on all these games okay later for real this time for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.